Thanks so much for inviting uh, me to uh, make this presentation. And thanks very much to the two speakers uh, who we had right at the start of the day. In many respects, I feel that you've set the platform, the groundwork for what I'm about to, to, to say. So it allows me to go a little bit faster in terms of some of the things that I'm going to say. Experience of ethnically minoritized students in higher education. So I guess I need to start off by explaining what I mean uh, by that. And one of the questions that came out of the earlier uh, discussion was about why BME or, and why not something else. And I guess that's, that, that is out there as one of those issues. And it's something that I struggle with and have struggled with and I will say a little bit more about this as we go through. Being scheduled to be the person who comes in just after, after lunch <laughs> is in itself a challenge. We knew you could do it Being scheduled to come in after two people who have just presented such excellent presentations <laughs> is another challenge. <laughs> But you kind of save me, you get me out of this by saying I'm going to have a practical focus so I don't have to get into that other level of that depth of, of uh, theory and stuff. If uh, Jacqueline Stevenson was here, she would understand this because much of the work that she does is about the ways in which universities and indeed I would say many organisations in the public-private sector try to outward face. And in outward face, they present these kinds of images about what is it that they want people to, 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 what messages they want to give to people about who they are and how diverse and how welcoming they are and so forth. And part of that uh, was intonated uh, in, Heidi's, uh, in Heidi's talk. And this is one of the, those examples that you see in the way in which uh, DMU, De Moffitt University, uh, presents itself. That's a part of uh, the, the, one of the leaflets that it has, and some of you can, if you move around campus, you see this kind of imagery uh, around there. A world of difference. Learn more at DMU. So if you look closely at this, you'll see that it has lots and lots of diversity, lots and lots of people from lots of locations, and I guess you would feel that it's somewhat welcoming. Uh, for you to, to come there. You would feel kind of safe uh, if you were uh, associated uh, with that. Population at DMU is something like, this is giving me feedback, is this giving everybody else feedback? You're all okay with this? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> 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 Population at DMU is uh, about 48% of the students there are uh, from the ethnically minoritized uh, groups. And so it's a place that I can feel safe, and I guess a lot of places that other students who are not white might feel safe. Because that's a part of what it says, it, it values diversity. So my research kind of commenced quite a long time ago and it commenced because I was interested in the area of widening participation. I was particularly interested in the area of widening participation on the basis of 
that this, the university had already attracted significant numbers of students uh, from the black communities or that those communities that you often people refer to as BME. Now I'm going to just deal with that. I don't use the term BME. Okay, I use the term ethnically minoritized. I don't use the term black minor, uh, BME, black minority ethnic, because for me, drawing on some of, uh, of, of the work of Fanon, to be constantly referred to as a minority when in fact you are not always a minority but you are still referred to as a minority would suggest that somebody else is a majority. And within the context of my work and thinking about that, I also think that association with minority and minority is associated with inferior and majority is associated with inferior, I reject this notion of constantly being referred to as a minority. And if you looked at that in a bigger sense, why are we not speaking about global majorities? And if we're speaking about global majorities, then those people who are not white would not be the minority in that sense. Minority is a structural point of reference, structural in relation to the ways in which laws, etc., are organized that begins to locate people in particular cases. I also use the term minoritized because I think this is something that is going on that is not something, it's that something that is fixed and then it, it's continually used in that way. Whether it's correct or not, whether the context fits or not, it's just continually used in that way. So for me, minoritize suggests there is something that is an ongoing active process that is taking place. There. So for me then, I was wanting to explore the ethnically minoritized students' experiences in higher education. I wanted to gain insights into factors uh, that these students felt impacted or explained at differential uh, attainment, retention, progression uh, in relation to, to their uh, awards, which is one of the points, uh, where one of the questions that John finished up with in terms of saying we don't know what the answer is, is to that or we don't know whether the students, uh, how, how did you say it? We do not have, we don't really know whether ethnic differences in attainment are reflected in student experience. I think that's part of how you, you put it. So maybe we'll gain some other insights uh, from this. To suggest ways of enhancing the ethnically minoritized students' experiences in, in, to increase attainment, reduce attrition, and to increase progression within courses and beyond. So these are some of the areas that have already been uh, focused on uh, earlier. Now, I was particularly interested in this, as I said, because I had come through this... I started my higher education experience in Dumont, and I came through that and had been in the higher education system throughout. My starting point in this was starting and being told you're not quite good enough but we're going to take a chance with you. Uh, and when I started that program I then realized that the criteria that was used for me and the criteria that was used for some of my peers, my white peers, uh, at the time seemed different. It was it kind of related to some of the points that uh, 
Heidi uh, was, was making reference to in terms of that recruitment thing. And I went through that program and came out at the end, other end thinking, mm, not sure about this. There's, there's something seems not quite right about this. And that, that made me uh, want to do some more work in this area. So in my research, I spent a long time trying to understand what is the problem. And this was a part of my literature review. And I, I did this, this tree. I was scribbling. I spent 18 months or so just trying to search through the literature and trying to understand uh, what the problems uh, were. You won't see this, but I'll put it there because it was really significant and important for me to just draft in through this. Uh, so that's what, that's the language that's on that. Now on the, on the, the tree, if I can, can I get back to that? There's this part here where I talk down here about roots and saying what's going on in here and part of this is about re uh, racism, discrimination, institutionalizations, uh, higher education uh, and so on. So I identified in the literature that there were these key uh, themes that seemed to be running through uh, a part of what else is taking place in higher education or, uh, as explanations as to why uh, these students are not doing particularly well. One of those was around state policy and rhetoric. So what were the policies that were around that would assist uh, these students? So was, you can talk about uh, aim higher as one example. We could talk about widening participation. We could talk about a number of policies that were saying if we, if we set these in place, then we're making it possible for students to get into, students who have been disadvantaged to get into higher education. There was also a, a discourse about education and legacy. That was about their, their previous educational experiences. If they have not had a good experience, then it's likely that that will follow them through into higher education. You can't expect them to have a, a, a better experience, especially that they, they were carrying uh, these negative experiences from where, where they started. Cultural impediments was another one of the bigger issues I felt that was coming through in the literature, that it was associated with, their, with, with where they come from. It was their culture that was holding them back. It was that they were not used to studying and they had all of these other factors. They were busy. They had lots and other issues that they had to deal with. So even when they got into higher education, they were busy doing other things. They couldn't commit themselves to higher education. Heidi uh, referred to that uh, as another aspect in terms of what in the literature sometimes you see it as cultural capital. So you've, you've got the, the, the discourse of cultural impediments and culture, the discourse of cultural uh, capital. With, with respect to widening participation, this, the question of the equation uh, was one which uh, kept coming through. The equation being that you were, expected to, you were expected to work with students who really shouldn't be here. Yeah? Greater numbers of ethnically minoritized students is ex would lead to lower standards. The fact that they are having, the, the fact that their attainment levels is not as great, we shouldn't be surprised. So why are we beating ourselves up about that? Yeah? It's a, it's a different starting point. So there was almost this nailed-on thing, I think one of the questions that was coming from the back about 
Is it the students? Is it within the students uh, and their communities, their locations, where they've come from that is creating the problem? By bringing these people in, you've created a problem for the institution. And then there was the link to that was the higher education inertia and resources. Actually, it doesn't matter that you told people that you know these students are capable. Because if you believe that they're not, and if you've got all of these that's working as part of your belief system, then that is, that is factoring. The realities are not, even if the realities and what you see in front of you is different, that is all feeding what is going on. That iner the idea of inertia is leading to uh, people saying that we, you know, we, can't, we can't change this, this is just the way it is. And part of the evidence that's coming out in terms of the outcomes that, as John illustrated, that over time, that gap isn't really narrowing, yeah? It kind of leads to this, it kind of leads people to saying, we're, we're using resources, but it ain't making any difference. Maybe we need to change the, pro the ways in which we're, we're, we're approaching that. And then this is a slight change uh, from, from some of the others, because this, this, this argument started to, to raise the question of whether we should consider how the individuals or how the institutions are in fact working uh, with the groups of, of students. So the question of cultural competence began to emerge in some of the literature that maybe we need to look at what we do because a part of what we do might be uh, reflected in the outcomes. Are we, you know, we, we're given qualifications that says we're capable of working with anybody. Actually, have we tested that? Can we really work with anybody? Yeah. And I think that we need to really, we need to look at this question of cultural competence, uh, cultural uh, intelligence. Bipin Chohan said that it's, it's a part of that whole debate around uh, multiculturalism and where it's about learning about the other. What can I tell you about what Muslims do? What can I tell you about African Caribbean people? What can I tell you about? And it's really about saying this cursory, this almost tourism, that when you're working with this group, this, these are the things that you must be aware of. But actually that does not reflect very much on what it is that you're doing in the institution that might lead this group to behave in a particular way uh, in given circumstances. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tourism approach uh, to that. And then there's the aspect of institutionalism, oppression, discrimination, uh, which was which, which found was the was the trunk, the mainstay of, of, of the tree uh, and the the roots that's located uh, within that. And then I added uh, the idea of creating spaces. Heidi and I hadn't spoken <laughs> before, so it was interesting sort of looking at her slides and part of what was up there. So I, the idea of creating spaces where some of the literature began to talk about maybe we need to have those other different spaces uh, for people to, to succeed. I recently came across this, which, which was uh, referred to social exclusion and a problem-free analysis. And what I found interesting was how it talked about uh, what's below the surface as being the root causes and what's above the surface as being the consequences. And 
you can have these slides because you can really look at that. I think this is a really useful way of trying to understand some of what, what it is we're seeing and some of what it is we're not seeing and the implications uh, be, be, between, between the two. So that was something that I've just found and something that I think I'll be able to use uh, in relation to, to linking some of those themes that I talked about uh, in terms of what's going on here. But I just want to pause at this moment because a part of what we're working with is about stuff that's above the surface and stuff that's below the surface. Below the surface for whom and above the surface for whom? I think that's a really important question. I think that, that question is also linked into what I refer to as the, uh, the framework the lens that I use to try to help me to understand a part of what is going on here. For a number of, of years, whilst I was going to conferences, whilst I was seeking to have conversations, and some of the issues of, uh, that was raised in, in, in the discussion so far was high levels of discomfort. I've gone to, to, to a number of different conferences and heard people say things like, well, the problem is, is that these students just don't have any confidence. And it just, I became cross, angry. But they don't have any confidence. I'm thinking, no, that's not true. They have confidence. They're beaten up when they start ex expressing their confidence. They've been, you know, put, back, put down. And yet, there was also this real concern, this discomfort this, this about talking about what, what else is going on. Because people didn't find it comfortable to talk about discrimination. People didn't find it comfortable to talk about racism. Yeah? People didn't find it comfortable to say that this is what you're doing to me and this is how I feel when this is going on. And so, so using a different lens yeah, was one that I started to look at in terms of trying to understand. Because I was, I was getting to the place, and I think lots of people was getting to the place, that, that where John, John in his presentation finishes up, what then are the issues, yeah? Because this is going on. And if we're talking about a fair and equal society in which we, we take people in and work with people consciously, earnestly, then we should, the outcomes from that should be about the same, yeah? That pretty much wasn't happening. So something else is happening. And if we, are, if we refuse to acknowledge what else is happening, we're going to get the same results. Yeah? And there's a discussion that we need to have. And I think it's a discussion that we veer away from. Yeah? Because actually it's not comfortable. And it's more than not comfortable. It's actually dangerous. It's dangerous for, for someone to say, my institution is racist. Mm. Who's going to say that? Who is going to say that? Who is going to say that my colleague is racist. Yeah. Ain't nobody in their right mind is going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> that's just so dangerous. <laughs> but there's something else that's kind of going on uh, in relation to that. Yeah, it's just one of the surest ways. If you work for the police and you told somebody that, yeah, they shoot you. Yeah. That's kind of how dangerous it is. All, everybody else will just not deal with you. Yeah. And you'd, you'd be out there isolated. Well, actually, that might seem a really one of those big out there examples. But when someone says, this is what's going on, this is my experience, you soon find yourself isolated in much the same way. Yeah, that's a part of. So we was using uh, theoretical 
uh, critical race theory as one of the lens, another way of looking and trying to understand what else is happening uh, within this. You probably can't see this at the back because I can only just about see something. <laughs> Sorry for that. The methodology was really based on uh, action uh, research using the critical lens. Using stuff like PCS model, and uh, PCS was is derived from uh, Neil Thompson did, did something that says if you want to understand a part of what is going on in society, look at that at, at three different levels, the personal, the cultural and the social. So discrimination takes place at these kinds of levels. Sometimes we understand what is happening at the personal, sometimes we need to understand that at the cultural and the structural uh, levels. And the students uh, that I was working with was very familiar with this. We did ranking, ranking exercise. So uh, people talk about SWOT analysis, uh, strengths, weaknesses, and uh, threats, opportunities. I talked about strengths, vulnerabilities, opportunities, and, and uh, threats. Force field analysis, spin triangles, rich uh, pictures, Johari, card sorting, smart and spy. So it's a, it's, a, it's a methodology that was looked at using the qualitative, finding examples and ways of enabling people's voices to come through uh, in relation to, uh, to that. Students worked occasionally as in a large group, often in smaller groups and sometimes individually in terms of what I called uh, student discussion groups. Sometimes people talk about focus group, but I was very engaged with wanting students to dialogue as a, as a means of being able to talk about their experiences. So this was an example of some of the students uh, that I worked with over a period of, this was over a long period, uh, some of the data that I'm presenting. Uh, so students uh, range from sometimes groups of 6 to groups of 20. Average numbers uh, were 10 students uh, in some of the discussion groups. All meetings uh, took place on campus. Uh, and we had all-day sessions. So we, we arranged for a day that says, this is your space. You use that how you, how you want. And the impossible what would happen is that we'd go in. I would provide tea, coffee, drinks and stuff and students would talk, and they would sometimes set the agenda in terms of what they want to talk about. So sometimes students would come in and say, my experience last week was, yeah, and sometimes others would, would buzz up with that and would say, oh yeah, I had that experience. Or, you know, people would begin to engage in a number of different uh, discussions. And sometimes I would say, well, that's really interesting. But it was they, they were kind of leading uh, that, that discussion. Is this making any kind of sense? Yeah. So it wasn't always me determining it was, uh, they were often engaged in that discussion. Another important point for me to say before I go further in this is that I, I brought in a facilitator. I brought in a facilitator, I brought in a white facilitator, so all of the students were from the minoritized group, but I brought in a white facilitator uh, who happened to be a woman, and maybe that was... Maybe that was a decision I made. I'm not sure that I consciously made that decision in that way, but I consciously made a decision to bring this particular person in because I knew of their qualities, abilities, etc. Okay? The person wasn't employed by the university, 
and wasn't known to the university. So in terms of independence from the students and independence in that the university couldn't do anything to the person, yeah, uh, that was something that I kind of made sure that was available uh, in relation to that. Is that understood? So that's something else that came in uh, in relation to that. Do you think that's a very good so that's a very good idea. I just, I, yeah. For me, it was important. It was yes. important for for the safety of the, the person. It was important mm. for the safety of the students. Meaning, even though the students, I believe, trusted me and had confidence with me, at the end of the day, I might still be assessing some of their work. Mm. Yeah, they might say something and they might be reticent about. You know, and so there was a whole trust issue. Mm. Uh, for me and them in terms of how we engage. And I think that over it's over time, it's over time that relationships and how you feel about people and the, the levels of trust begins to, it begins to change. So that kind of happened. I should say that the students, uh, because this was really important to me, it was important to the students and important to the, the person. When, when I invited the students and they, they saw this uh, white woman, they said, what's she doing here? And it was like, whoa. And that was like, you know, one of those big, big questions right up at the start. And <laughs> said, okay, you better explain. So they, they pretty much interviewed her. Yeah. Pretty much interviewed her and decided whether or not they was prepared to work with her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And on the basis of their interview, on the basis of that discussion, they said, yeah, we, we, we can work with you. We, we want to work with you. And what that did was it, was it began the part of the process of what do we mean by participatory action research. It wasn't me determining and dictating to students, it was students taking part of that and saying, yes, we feel valued and we feel this is a, a, a more equal process that we're engaged in. And so that, that pretty much happened uh, with that. The ratio of students were about 65% of the students were women, about 35% were men, all were from the minoritized groups, African students, Asian students, Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani uh, backgrounds. Most of the students were, uh, in terms of uh, Asian, about 40% from the uh, Asian community, about 10% from the uh, uh, African Caribbean, and 10% from the mixed uh, communities. So that's a part of what that kind of looked look like. Uh, you said about the mixed, uh, the PS, PCS. I've got to go fast. Uh, one of the things we talked about students, talked with students about was what some of their experiences were in education. They did that and then they put those on post-dicks. And that's a part of what you're seeing there. They then had conversations with each other, and the conversations they had with each other said, what, what, uh, which aspects of your experiences would you put as part of the personal? Yeah? That is about you and where you come from and those things that you take ownership of. What aspects of those would you put in the cultural? Is that about what else is happening within the cultural context of that? And what else is happening at the structural uh, level of that? So is this about just you and how you are and the fact that, you know, when I started, when I started school, my first day in school in this country, I had four fights. I didn't know why I had four fights, but I did. Uh, I kind of, at, at the time, thought, oh, maybe it's because I'm black and maybe, you know, and I kind of thought there was no other reason. So I thought maybe, so I would be putting maybe that as, as, as in here because I, could, I had no other way of explaining that. But is there something else that's happening here which is kind of, 
in, in influence what else was going on there. And part of that was, was taking place in, in, in that way. When I started to look at uh, that data and a lot of the data that was put together, I started to look at this again and reflecting it back to in relation to the, the themes at the start. So if you remember the, seven, the eight themes that we had at, at the start. When I, we started to go through the data that was emerging from, from the research, this is a part of what, this is a part of what it, it looked like. What is missing down here is state uh, policy and rhetoric. And that was the things that the students didn't say very much about at all. But this is part of the weighting that they attached to these other areas and the ways in which they felt that these were impacting on their experiences. So this one talks about cultural impediments. They didn't talk about cultural impediments as a big factor uh, in relation to their experiences and the outcomes from that. And that's, that's actually, that's worth pausing on and thinking about because it's not something they regarded as was that significant in their experiences. And yet in the literature, it is regarded as significant yeah, in what is going on as part of the explanation for people's experiences. Is that making some kind of sense? And, and educational, uh, uh, education and legacy, they didn't regard that as a big, big issue. Yeah? What they regarded as the biggest issue was institutionalism, racism, discrimination. So that's kind of out there. That's the part of where they put that. They talked about cultural competence. They just don't get me. Yeah? I'm in a place and they just don't get me. I'm trying to do this, but they don't get me. Yeah? And that was an experience that was constantly repeated. Inertia, they talked about differential treatment in terms of how they were treated against how they perceived some of their peers were, were, were treated. They just don't have any time for us. And they said, and I think that they said this probably because a space was created in which they felt that they were then able to just be, yeah? So we can have conversations in what are, is regarded as safe space, and in that space we're now yeah, we just we've just been. We're not. It's not this highly competitive thing. We've got this space. We're learning a little bit about ourselves, and we're we're being assisted to actually improve. And so that's a part of the, some of the things that they said there. And when you look at that, it kind of turns that in in, in a different in a different way. This was just an example of one of the things that we did in terms of the SWOT. So the SWOT. Strengths, uh, vulnerabilities, strength, vulnerabilities, uh, opportunities, and threats. So in the strengths, the students talked about these are things that they felt were working for them. They said that they had, they can, they had pride in themselves. They had lived and they, they managed to survive. They've survived sometimes hostile experiences. And they need to be, they said they, we, we're proud of that. We're still here in spite of all of this other stuff that's kind of going on. Yeah? And would they understand something about their own power, their own influence? It wasn't just the negative, it wasn't this whole deficit thing, that there's some other things that's going on. They talked about solidarity uh, with others. They had an understanding of their own history, their own sense, and that wasn't true for all. That was something that was a part of a journey that they was going through. And they said that the more they understood this, the greater sense of, of pride and strength that they had. But they also talked about vulnerabilities, and they were, they were 
very aware of their vulnerabilities. And I think that's really important because that being aware of your vulnerabilities actually causes you to behave in particular ways. Yeah? It's been about, you know, do I feel safe? If I dress a particular way, and, and, and Heidi gave some examples about that, do I wear the hijab, do I do this, do, you know, I, I, do I feel sufficiently confident? It's not me. <laughs> do I feel sufficiently confident to do some of these things? So they doubted the systems and sometimes the world that was around us. And when I looked at that in relation to the idea of confidence, that idea of confidence that was often referred to as this person doesn't have confidence. It would be great if they had more confidence. It would be great if they were more resilient. What the students were saying is that they don't have confidence in the system, not that they don't have confidence in themselves and their ability, yeah, was that the systems in which they work, they don't have this, this level of confidence in that. They doubted that. And that in, in turn was affecting the ways in which they were engaged uh, within the wider process. They were talked about being afraid of being a target. You know, what is it that makes a person a target? My, 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 my wife says to me, you're just one of those persons, you always make yourself a target. And I said, well, in what ways do I make myself a target? The way you dress, she says, the way you dress, you know, you just always make yourself a target. <laughs> I'm still trying to get my head around, still trying to get my head around that. They don't expect to be supported. Yeah. They, they said that there's something about having lower ex, uh, aspirations. And this is really important because people say that's one of their problems, is that they have low aspirations. Okay? Now, what they were saying was that some of these yeah, was leading to that. That it's almost like, I didn't, I didn't aim high yeah, because I would only be disappointed because all of these other things are kind of going on. Yeah? So they were, they were aware of that as one of the aspects of, of, of vulnerability. Uh, so they go along with things uh, just to stay safe, just to stay safe. Just yesterday I was reading a piece of work from, from a student who's, that said, I witnessed a racial attack. And I thought, wow, you didn't say nothing about that, what did you do? And, and, it, and it, it continued, so, and, and the impact that that had on me was it, it, I became silent. I didn't want to enter the group. I, I just chose not to enter that group. It did not feel like a safe space. I, I took myself out of that and I thought, what impact did that have for the persons who was, if that was the case, in a group context, that you saw that and you just took yourself out of that? What impact? Did it have? Does it not leave that other person being just isolated? Who did you report that to? And the answer was nobody. I just kind of just took myself out. I didn't want to be a target. A, in terms of how others are going to see me, yeah, and the relationships that I have with the groups go, uh, going forward. And that's a part of what the student went on to say. Didn't want to be afraid of being isolated. So the vulnerabilities uh, and all of this were impacting on. Heidi made reference to this notion of how you see yourself, how others see you, becomes a part of, she was used in a, in a 
context of how, how you address, you become some part of that, the embodiment uh, of some of, some of these. So another aspect of this was the, the threats uh, that students talked about. Uh, how much time, if you want to engage in the process of change, that takes a lot of time. How, am I, how can you expect me to engage in making change when you expect me just to stay on the course and, and do my work? That actually demands more time for me, and if I'm going to engage in that, that's going to take me away from some of this. So I can't be involved in this change because I am taking all of my efforts, all of my energy, just trying to survive and be successful uh, on, the, on this course. So they, they were saying, whilst we want to do some of that, these are, there are some threats to participating uh, in some of this. However, they did speak about opportunities, and they spoke about opportunities here in terms of what they saw as opportunities for black students, for white students, and for the institution. And this is this, this, at the time that they were speaking about this, I think that, that this has changed a lot, because this, the student survey has become an instrument uh, that universities are using in a, in a different way from how they were at, at, at this time. So they were, they were saying that in terms of if the university, uh, as part of an opportunity, that if the university is working effectively with them, then it helps them in terms of the real, the, the real commitment to diversity and wider participation. So it's not just about a tokenism, it's about something that is real. That if they are working effectively at that level, then this, it could make a different impact in terms of the student surveys, etc. Et, et so they kind of uh, looked at that in, in more detail, more, more detail and more time than I can give to that today. So these are some of the themes then that emerges from the research that I, that I did. So discrimination uh, was, was coming out, positionality, desire for safe space, conscientization, learning contracts, what they refer to as a radical curriculum, uh, peer support and mentoring. And they were sort of saying that these are, these are some things that they felt needed to happen. Th these three along with that. And these were other things that they felt was taking place. Now discrimination and um, positionality. They spoke about positionality within the context of saying, well we're here and they're there and they're there. But they spoke about that in lots of different ways. And that within the group, within the minoritized groups, they were sort of saying we're different. We're not even supported by some people who are, who are supposed to be like us. So we can't even trust people yeah, who are kind of here. Because sometimes they were almost co-opted. Yeah? To, in, they were co-opted. So, so some students would say, I spoke about these as race-neutral students. That it doesn't. It's it's not race. It's not ethnicity. Everybody have the same chance. Yeah. That I'm not prepared to allow the, the argument of race to be a factor that that stops me. And and that's a part of what students were saying until they met this real obstacle and they couldn't. They didn't have another way of explaining that. And then there were some students who were race conscious who talked about it is this and we need to be more upfront up in terms of talking people, talking about this and holding people to account in relation to part of what's, what's going on here. Positionality, they spoke about positionality in terms of their own position and the positions of a whole range of others. And, and this, the, this was, came out in terms of collusion. They said, we saw people colluding with, yeah? So there was uh, white students colluding with white students, colluding with staff, black students colluding with uh, white students and colluding with staff. It was kind of quite, you know, it was horizontal and it was vertical in terms of what was going on here in terms of positionality. And the positionality in terms of the institution, how the, how the institution 
projects itself, perceives of itself, and the story that it wants to tell, yeah, as against the story which was the experience that was coming through from the students. So often, I think he was raising a question, and the, and the question of resistance kind of really emerged. There was this massive levels of resistance from staff and from students and people who just didn't want to have this uncomfortable uh, conversation that was emerging uh, in that place. Conscientization, uh, Heidi made reference to, to Freire's notion of this, and I talked about this in terms of what I saw taking place within the group of students who were meeting over periods of time. And it was this kind of almost this process that I talk about a mindfulness that students began to work with each other. Students who suddenly be began to believe in themselves and started to work with each other and began to achieve uh, in relation to that. One of the things they said is that we're dictated to in terms of what we must do and they said we want learning contracts, we want, we want to be more involved in processes about what we must do and how we must do that. They wanted something that is taught about a radical curriculum. I think that conversation about a radical curriculum, and Heidi made reference to hashtag why is my curriculum white. One of the modules I, I taught, and so some of the students here would have been involved in that, is a, is a module called Black Perspectives. And they said that what that did for them was it began to help them to have a different notion of self uh, in relation to others. And they said that, that that needs to be something that is not just available to black students. It wasn't. It was across the board. But it was just within particular courses. So what they were saying, it should be available across the board yeah, within the university. In fact, some students will say, why, why is it that I'm only this has only become available to me in my second year of university education? This should be a part of the curriculum at a much earlier stage uh, in, in, in life. They also talked about peer support and mentoring systems, which quite lots and lots of uh, organisations, universities have already started to say we should do, be doing some, some things around that. So, so, what are some of the narratives? I'm going to go through this really quickly. Uh, there's tens of lots of issues, not clear where to start, lots of baggage, and so forth. And I'm kind of very conscious of time, so I'm just going to go through uh, these and we can talk about that. As I earlier stated, I was refused help and if I received any, I was dictated to. I felt frustrated that there was no one I could ask for assistance. Or that if she refused me time, that she offers others freely. So these were just some of the discussions that was coming through. When I asked the facilitator what were some of her uh, impressions of what was going on. This is one of the comments she made. But the emotional process closely resembled the process of grieving, denial, anger, bargaining, deep sadness and, accept and acceptance. This is a part of her reflection and part of what she, she felt she observed from working with the group uh, going through. They already think we're not educated. I just want to finish this degree and get out of here. Resonate with some people. Yeah. It is just a struggle. It's that everyday struggle. Some of the universities, this is again from the, the facilitator, some of the students were considered by the universities to be struggling, struggling or failing. Many of those participating in the discussion groups were engaged, yet struggling to be understood within a system that appeared to find it easier to be incredulous about the efforts that these students were making. It's a very, very different picture in terms of what's going on. And if I try to illustrate this in, in, in one way. This for me was a very powerful thing that I saw. It was where the 
Afro-Caribbean society was meeting and it was, it was their space and they, they kind of met about 300 students in this room, lecture theatre, open mic session and they started to do their own thing, poetry, music, the whole business and I sat there and thinking, wow, I never see this, this level of engagement in any of my lectures and my lectures are good. <laughs> I never see this, this is just like, whoa, and the sort of like political engagement, this was really insightful and thought, wow, they were setting the agenda, they were sort of really engaged in terms of what, what else was going on, none of those students looked as if they were not achieving, all of those students were just at, at this at a whole other level, and that was saying to me something about, what is it, what can we learn from this? How can we capture this in a way that we bring this back, that we stimulate students in such a way that we actually talk about success in a very different way rather than here, this is, this is the form, it must be done in this way. Because when it's this, this is the form and it must be done in that way, you get the kind of results that we're getting. Yeah? More of the narratives. So, I use smart and spiced now, SPART was about students using these as tools of evaluating how they evaluated their experience and what they felt needed to happen in terms of making the change. So it wasn't about just what we thought should happen, it's about what students felt should happen in making the change. So that was about SMART, uh, specific, measurable and achievable and SPICE, using a subjective and uh, participatory interpreted cross-referencing in terms of making some of those changes. These are just some of the examples that they use. I'm not going to spend any more time on those, but you can see that. We'll pause on this one because I really like that. This is about one of the things they said about learning contracts, and this is something that they drew up. Can you see this? Can you read this from the back? No, I don't think you can. <laughs> Can't read it from here. But one of the things that they said is that it is not an antagonistic relationship that they're seeking. That in terms of learning contracts, what they want is something that brings people closer together. That actually says unity across here. That we are in a struggle. It's about how do we bring that together? How do you become, how do you appreciate the ideas that we have rather than just being dictated to? That we can engage in this much more on a partnership level rather than being in this kind of other, other place. And the students were saying, we want to be a part of making the change. Uh, in relation to that. Now it takes a brave university, it takes a brave academic to say, let's be truly involved in this. Yeah? This, is, this is something where we have to relocate and reposition how, we ch how we're going to engage uh, in, this, in this dialogue uh, of change. So here are some questions that uh, begin to have. But I want to finish off just by saying, so what has been the university's uh, response? And one of the university's response, based on some of the research that I've undertaken, is first of all they set up a group which was called uh, REAMS, Retention, Academic Attainment and Ethnic Minorities. And that was initially commissioned with saying, we need you to, we need you to give us some intelligence about what is happening in, this, in, in, in relation to this. And that took the form of much in the way that John has done, much looking at the statistical information and so forth. We then went on to doing some work with students, doing research with students about their experiences, and that led to uh, some focus group discussions. Where we are now is that we've, we're setting up a centre for 
culturally responsive learning and teaching. And within that, we want to draw on the statistical uh, information. So what is the data that we have? We collect loads and loads of data. What is that data? And how can we fine-tune that data to get an understanding that will make some kind of difference in terms of that experience? Students talked about peer support uh, mentoring systems, so, so we need to look at that. Finding safe spaces, learning contracts, culturally responsive uh, teaching framework. And this begins to come back to what does that mean in terms of cultural competence? What does that mean in terms of the curriculum? What does that mean in terms of pedagogy? So it's beginning to say it's not just about the students and the students in terms of deficit, but it's actually saying we also need to look at us. And this is a part of a, a program in terms of organisational uh, uh, organisational development, organisational change program that the university has now engaged in. Someone asked the question about the race equality charter mark. I had included that as one of the objectives, and I did include that as part of one of the objectives because I said to achieve the race equality charter mark, you have to have someone as high as a vice chancellor to say, yeah, we're going to do this, we're committed to this. And you know, when someone up that level say, yeah, we're going to do this, we can, it kind of sends a signal yeah, through, yeah. Through, through the rest of the organisation. I wanted to answer your question, because, <laughs> because a part of what you, you begin to see, and, and, and Heidi said, it can also become a tick box. Yeah? And it's about how you, how you work with that to try and make sure that actually that's not what it is. That you say, this is what, this is what it is, how do you work to ensure that all of these yeah, are, lo are, are located uh, within that. So my question then is, are these happening or does this discourse continue? And the discourse continues and with the addition of some of the other themes that, uh, I, that I discovered and others have discovered. Are we simply creating monsters? And I say that because if anyone knows the idea of the hydra, which is what this is, that sometimes you set out to do one thing, yeah? And you, you, you say you've done that, you've chopped that head off, you've done it, but actually what happens is it grows two other heads. Yeah? And sometimes we're in that kind of situation that we think we've achieved one thing, yeah. but actually we sometimes another uh, aspect of this monster has, has emerged. I think that we are in a big, huge struggle uh, in relation to that, and that struggle takes place within the context of a real resistance to change at a whole range of levels. And I think that all of those issues, and, and part of what I've talked about is, are some insights in relation to what that experience is. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.